Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Higher Future. I am UB Simignetti, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Nicole Gravagna. Hello. Hi, UB. And we have a guest host, uh, CEO of Interview IA, Joe Thurman. What's up? What's up, UB and Nicole? Hey, Joe. <laughs> Yeah, so we're excited today. We're um, we're talking to a, an old friend of of Joe and Nicole's. Uh, the last few months, they've been talking a lot of uh, a lot about different stuff. Um, so Jonathan John Hicks is senior counsel of employment law at Netflix. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So yeah, we we wanted to talk about the future of work, um, as is the topic of this this program, this podcast, but for, through the eyes of, of your perspective, right, in, in law and in employment law specifically, and, and what that looks like. So um, let's start there, just kind of in general, like where do you, given the last year, COVID, Black Lives Matter, systemic inequalities, uh, where, where are things going in your mind? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really tough to uh, put a finger on where, you know, all companies will go, but I think the, the, the overarching theme I've seen, you know, being uh, a lawyer at a technology company, I'm also a part of organizations where leaders from all over uh, various sectors come together and talk and um, the flexibility, I think, is the overarching um, change that is going to come from uh, working through this pandemic. Uh, you know, if you think about it from a perspective of how things are innovated or created, it's usually through having to cobble something together with duct tape and bando. Um, you know, I'm in an emergency, I have no idea what to do, so I'm going to come up with this random crazy fix, and oh my goodness, this random crazy fix just happens to be something I can continue to use for the rest of my career or whenever I'm sort of battling the problem. I think that's what it's going to be. I think that, you know, folks have had to be more flexible in how they approach their work, how they approach talking to people about work. Uh, and I think that it's a, it's a good kind of flexibility because it's gonna give more people access to more of their time. Um, and it's lowering the threshold for people being able to contribute. A good example. Yeah. Uh, do you have any good examples of this? Yeah, good example. Good example. So um, I'm on the board of a leadership organization. And usually what board members do is they meet quarterly. And these quarterly board meetings are usually a really long time. So depending upon how verbose the board is, obviously mine are pretty verbose because I'm on them. They could be anywhere from like three to five hours. But if you look at that from a buy-in, Usually what you do is you have to drive to that board meeting. That board meeting encapsulates a lot of networking and conversation before or after. And so this commitment that you originally thought would be three to five hours becomes like your entire day or half of a day. And that's a very daunting transaction cost for most things. But when you can do it over Zoom, you've dramatically reduced the transaction cost. Not only that, when you can do it over Zoom, you're also given more of an opportunity to break things up, really to really just identify what are the things that are important as a takeaway from this meeting. And so you analyze meeting 
from the perspective of what are we trying to accomplish, not the value of this meeting is just bringing everybody together. And I think that reframing has created lots of innovation. So to that point, how sticky do you, so there's a lot of social norms that have changed in the last year, right? Remote first, other things, but back to the point you just made, if you had to look into, you know, your, your, the future a little bit, John Hicks future, how sticky is this? And how, how long are we in this world where people are finding, you know, and adopting those things that you just outlined and teams are on zoom more than they're in a meeting room. Um, yeah. What, what do you think the next couple of years look like as it thaws out and you're uh, just in your belief kind of where, where do you land? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see. It's a good barometer. So I think for organizations where this is going to be sticky, it's those organizations that are spry, that are thoughtful, that don't have hubris around how they work because they'll appreciate the efficiencies that have come out of this period of time within which they've been working. And they'll appreciate that some of the norms or structures that they had before really weren't serving them well. And so for the organizations or the companies that are able to say, oh, wow, like we really didn't need to be doing that. So let's just not do it anymore. It doesn't help us. Um, those are the places where it's going to be sticky. It's going to be real sticky. In fact, those are the places where um, this period of history, this, this pandemic and forcing folks to be at home is going to encourage more innovation about how people approach connecting with each other more innovation around how people dialogue um, and, and encourage each other to participate generally in conversation. So again, it's the organization that will dictate the stickiness. You know, will, will it have dramatic change in how our government, governments work? Probably not, because it takes a long time for governments to react to change. You know, will it take a long time for this to impact how stalwart companies approach their strategies? probably because they have established norms and it's really going to be really difficult for them to break those patterns, not only from a process perspective, but from a culture perspective, because their culture is really right built around this type of interaction. But for, you know, new companies, um, for companies who have always been kind of loose and spry with how they communicate, this could be a pretty sticky and innovative period of time that has lots of benefits for those, for those folks. Well, and I, the, the stickiness to me also, and it could be so from like a, uh, an, uh, an employment law perspective and, and, you know, uh, standard operating procedures, like some of this could actually be like live as we've got this new written thing, right. That that's now law for lack of a better word, it within our operating procedures, within our within how we are built as a company and how we're going to move forward as a company. Like you could actually truly make it very sticky um, by making it, you know, by actually like having it in writing, so to yeah. speak. Right. I mean, you could, but I think most of the real innovations are, are coming through human connection, not necessarily through dramatic changes in policy. Right. It happened too fast for us to really dramatically change a policy that's been around for a while. But I think what you will see is you'll start to see people rethinking how certain systems work. Uh, a, a really good example, of, an amazing example, are the jurisdictions who are thinking about providing hazard pay 
to you know, frontline workers in grocery stores and um, other places where they're forced to work and they also don't get paid very much. Like, that's innovative. You know, giving more pay, mandating more pay for a particular type of worker in a particular circumstance to get them through a, uh, a very hard time is a very new way of looking at what government can do. And I think that thinking will continue. Um, the folks who buy into that thinking, you know, should grow. But like, those are gonna be the things that I would really watch out for. I'm wondering if you're seeing uh, any essentially roadblocks that have come up to this sort of innovative thinking with respect to employment law. Are there, are there laws on the books that you've seen that have stopped people municipalities or companies from supporting their employees in a way that would seem logical, but we, we maybe didn't think it through and it's in the books wrong. I don't know. What, what have you seen? Yeah, there? you know, pro probably not stop um, because I think there are lots of things that companies want to do um, that require they get creative about the way that they were offering these benefits. And so the benefits or the changes that they were offering didn't change dramatically in their approach or, or a, a framework for the law, but maybe they got bigger or maybe they got more specific. A, a good example is lots of companies gave their employees stipends, right? That they wouldn't normally give for things like furniture, a new desk, um, increased costs associated with sort of now being forced to work from home. You weren't required to do that before. The laws didn't really change. The laws didn't really make it easy for folks to come up with that idea as a stipend. They had to really think through how they work. But, um, you know, it, it, it also wasn't a dramatic change in the providing of the benefit. They just paid more. And so when you really think about what the law does is it, is it creates a framework for how to solve problems. Um, and, you know, most folks try to work within that framework when solving the problems. And so there are lots of things that, you know, we could have done more easily if the laws had changed, but I don't, I didn't bump into anything where we were like, oh, we have to do this. But from a legal perspective, it was like, you absolutely cannot. Um, because it, either we didn't want to do it because it wasn't fair, it wasn't right, it wasn't equitable. I mean, the, the tenets of the law around fairness and equity also guide decisions that you make around fairness and equity that uh, make the framework work. That's reassuring. <laughs> well, you, if you're around a lot of creative people, they'll find a way. I, I have a question. As you talk, so frameworks and... Um, Everyone loves talking about EEOC compliance, right? <laughs> it's going to get a lot of people logging into the podcast, you before you. Uh, no, but uh, not going deep on that. But you talked about a framework, right? So EEOC has protected classes and there's all the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a lot of big companies coming out looking at goals that they're setting over the next two, five, 10 years to make these big leaps within their leadership. Um, so, so there's the framework that has been around, which is EEOC or other laws that have changed and protected people. And then there's the behavior that we're seeing right now in the market, whether it 
continues or not, hopefully it does. And I think to a certain extent it will. How are those two connected or, or how do you view, you know, the behavior that we're seeing? And then obviously laws haven't changed in that, in that space. So what is the connection? What is the support? How do we take a step up to give ourselves something that is, that gives us strong footing that maybe does support the social changes um, in, in some way with maybe legal changes or maybe not, but your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think one that has multifacets to it. But if I had to think about it at a high level, I would say that, um, you know, the purpose of the EEOC and the desires of most companies around diversity and inclusion probably aren't going to change. But what will change is the innovative way they go to tackle those problems, right? So discrimination will always be something that um, the EEOC works at preventing. Um, and they may now have a more nuanced approach to what discrimination looks like. Um, you know, they, they're, they're now having broader and bigger conversations about what uh, satisfying gender stereotypes means from a gender discrimination perspective. It's not a new conversation, right? People have been having that conversation for a while. But now the conversation has a little bit more traction because more people are talking about it. the binary nature of gender, right? Like you've got a form that gives you two choices traditionally and you have to pick. Well, companies are really innovating around how they're approaching allowing folks uh, or enabling folks to identify um, their gender and government's going to have to catch up. And so I think that what, what you'll see is the big parts, right? Making sure people are treated fairly, making sure discrimination is lessened um, and efforts to create diversity and inclusion in companies, not new ideas, not new efforts, but the tools with which those things get accomplished are gonna change. And I think that, you know, because more people are looking at them, more innovative people are looking at them and more importantly, more people are willing to take risks on things that they didn't try before because the pressure around making change is greater now than it's ever been before. And so I think that's probably what you'll see. You'll just see new approaches, you know, a willingness to try something different. I mean, you know, think about the way that we're, have administered tests for COVID and are administering vaccines. Most of this stuff is happening on an app and you're getting your information from your government in an app. Like this is the first time I've connected with my government in an app and it's worked. So like, you gotta think like these, these are new tools that existed, but we're gonna be start using them in different ways for the same or similar purposes. And so that's what I see, I think. Um, the framework will stay the same, but how we accomplish the goal in the framework is gonna change dramatically, I think. Did I answer your question, Joe? Probably not. No, it did. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard question to answer. I, I, yeah, I, I, it, it makes total sense. It makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, totally. Well, speaking of hard questions, I know uh, Dr. Nicole has a, has a hard question to lob your way. Right. Here we go. We're getting into the meat. Well, <laughs> it, similar to the question I asked prior, this one more around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Have you seen um, any barriers from U.S. employment law that allows companies to address diversity, equity, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion challenges. And you know, if you 
if you could wave the magic wand, uh, what what would you see shifted? What would you like to see shifted? Yeah, that's a that's a great point and a, and a, and a really really tough question. Um, so let me start with if I could make, wave a magic wand, what would I do? Um, the idea of having three wishes scares me. Right, the idea of being able to wave a magic wand and make a change scares me because of the unattended consequences of a thing that you would do. And so if you think about um, discrimination, equity and inclusion and liberty, which is a new add to the DEI, now D-E-I-L uh, initialisms that we've been using, if you wave a magic wand to solve a small thing over here, you have no idea how it's gonna impact things down the chain that might thwart your efforts to go in a particular direction. And so I'd be really wary about waving uh, a, a magic wand. And if I did, it wouldn't be a big change that I would, that I would do. It would probably be really small, very, very tactical change. And, um, but one of the things that I think you, you'll start to see and, and, and more companies are doing it, uh, is be very transparent about the work that they're doing from a, a diversity, inclusion, equity, and now liberty perspective. Big companies are doing it, right? We've got a page up that has uh, Brene talk about the strategy of inclusion that we're implementing at the company. It's very public about our diversity numbers. If you'd have asked me about this a couple of years ago, I'd, and most employment lawyers would have told you, we should be very particular about how we put that information out, what we say, make sure it's right and exact. Is it really moving the needle that we wanna do it? Because just being transparent about that stuff is risky. The facts stay the same, but do we really wanna be broadcasting this? Can we just kind of say we're making traction? And I think a lot of that was around fear of showing numbers that would suggest you're discriminating against certain types of people. Um, but it didn't take a change in the law to get folks to make that jump, to share that information and be transparent. It took a change in culture and some minor changes in the law along the way. And so this magic wand that you gave me, um, I probably wouldn't use it to move boulders but I would probably use it to make the, to get rid of some potholes if I had to create it. Is that a fair answer to your question? Well, it was a bit of a deflection into culture <laughs> away from law, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> I'll take well, it. Well, to, you know, to be candid, I feel like we've had this conversation before. I often think about the law as a reflection on culture yeah. and that, you know, legal norms and cultural norms tend to impact each other in this ebb and flow of, you know, how do we want to show up as a, as, a, as a company, as an organization, and as a country. So cultures, I think, have to change in some way before laws even come close to wanting to be changed. That, yeah. that leads into a fun question that I would love to ask. I might get kicked off because I'm a guest host and I'm asking a lot of questions. So I don't know if I'll be invited back, John. But... <laughs> I probably won't be invited back either. Maybe we should start our own podcast. <laughs> but to that point of, um, so like last year, we saw a lot of, you were talking about from a general counsel or a legal perspective, especially in corporate, there's a lot of, should we say, is it perfect? And last year we saw a change where 
not saying anything was saying a lot. So you put these corporations in a position where not making a statement, and it happened, I'd call it, there were three or four significant things last year. Obviously, we know many of them, there's others, but there were milestone occurrences last year where companies either made a statement or they didn't. And in not making a statement, they were making a statement. So how has that changed the world of general counsel or corporate legal counsel, obviously from what you said of, are we saying it the right way? Should we make a statement to, you kind of have to say something <laughs> and, and yeah. maybe you don't, but I mean, what do you, how do you think about that? So I, I am fortunate to work for a company that I think was one of the first, if not the first to post on their social media pages about uh, silence being complacency. Um, and so, if I, to answer your question, I think that what, what's changed dramatically is the value of making those statements. So most decisions at companies are sort of this cost benefit analysis. If it's not really gonna benefit us, then why should we do it? And in the past, the costs of not saying something were pretty low, particularly around issues of diversity and inclusion. People didn't think it was gonna impact economics. People didn't think it would impact the brand or the perception. People just kind of thought we're, there's probably more risk in speaking and being misinterpreted than not speaking and being, you know, one of the other hundreds of companies, thousands of companies that are just remaining silent on this very, very important issue. But then you saw the massive pivot in the weight of making those decisions. I mean, just look at the 180 degrees the NFL took. I mean, really took a big swing from, you know, not saying anything at all and, 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 and really suggesting that um, making public statements about uh, uh, inequities in the United States is not something their players should be doing to going the whole other direction and having players making public statements on their shoes, right? The, the big brands putting public statements on their products about the plight of people of color, women, and all the inequities that are happening in the United States, that's a 180 degree switch. And it wasn't because they all of a sudden became nice people, right? It's because they appreciated that the, there's real harm in not speaking. And so I think, I think that's what you're starting to see. I think what you're starting to see is the brand impact of being silent the brand impact of not having a position, the potential brand lift that you get from being proactive and thoughtful and, and trendsetting in this area uh, that really has dominated the zeitgeist for the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, I think this, this is great because there's, this, there's a lot here that's really defining kind of the future of work uh, from all these different perspectives, which is really cool. Um, I, you know, I, I can't thank you enough. Obviously we could keep talking for, for hours. Uh, do look for the spinoff podcast that Joe and John will be hosting talking about how the great British Bake Off is really Bridgerton. So I'm excited for that spinoff um, to explore that with all of you so thank you <laughs> i wonder i wonder which of the podcasts will get more views yeah right exactly podcast or the one where john's talking about the future of <laughs> I, think Joe and I, I think we win that one challenge accepted <laughs>
Challenge accepted. Let's talk about the hard things here. They're maybe not always the most popular topics. <laughs> That's right. That's all right. You guys can be on PBS. We'll go straight to Fox. <laughs> You'll find us on Curiosity Stream, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Oh, boy. I can't wait. Well, John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Joe and Nicole. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you guys for inviting me. It's been a joy. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, as always, check it out. We'll have links um, to all the different streaming sites that we're, that we're available on. So thank you for tuning in. Take care. Bye.